Welcome to Investing in Integrity. I'm Ross Overline, CEO and co-founder of Scholars of Finance, a rapidly growing organization on a mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow. If you're an investor, finance professional, or student aspiring to make an impact with capital, this show is for you. Investing in Integrity brings you conversations with leading minds in finance to help you learn how you can make finance a force for good by investing in integrity. In today's episode, we were joined by Jonathan Nee, a senior advisor at Evercore and the co-director of Columbia Business School's Media and Technology Program. Before joining Evercore as a senior managing director in 2003, Professor Nee was a managing director and co-head of Morgan Stanley's Media Group. He was also previously publishing sector head in the communications, media, and entertainment group at Goldman Sachs. Prior to becoming an investment banker, he was director of international affairs at United Airlines and served as an adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University. He is a prolific writer, if that's not enough, and his writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, The Atlantic, and Jonathan is the author of several published books. We discussed many topics, including his life journey, advice for people seeking a career in finance, his experience in academia as a professor at Columbia University's business school, his books, and the role that finance plays in society. Jonathan gave us some incredible insights, and we are privileged to have him today. So without further delay, we bring you Jonathan Nee. Jonathan Nee, sir, it is such a pleasure to have you on the Investing in Integrity podcast. I've been waiting for this for quite a while. We're, we're super excited to have you today. Let's dive right in. First of all, how are you and where are you calling in from? I am as great as a person can be in a pandemic, and I'm calling from my uh, humble abode on the Upper East Side, where uh, all the investment bankers who don't live in Greenwich live. Thanks so much, and I'm glad that you're as great as can be. I want to jump right in. Can you start by telling us, our audience, a bit about yourself and your story? I was a JD MBA. For me, the MBA was sort of a, an add-on. I wasn't really that interested. This is back in the 80s. It may seem strange now, but it was really only in the 80s that MBAs were started to be viewed as really professional degrees rather than basically trade degrees. Harvard and Wharton were always there, but your mother didn't want you to uh, go be uh, an MBA, she wanted you to go be a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. And it was really only in the 80s, I think with the emergence of superstar CEOs and that kind of thing, that franchise of getting a top MBA became significantly broader and central to the zeitgeist of young, ambitious people. And my interest, honestly, at the time was simply, I was quite skeptical of what it was that these folks were teaching. And at that moment in, in history, Stanford had emerged as a, as sort of the uh, kind of hot MBA program. And I thought, what the heck, if it gets me and costs me an extra year above my JD, and I get to spend two years in beautiful Palo Alto, particularly since my JD was going to come from Yale, trading in one year of New Haven for two years of Palo Alto is, you don't need to be an investment banker to know that that is a very good trade. 
And I figured out a way to sneakily, uh, but uh, totally legitimately, negotiate with the two institutions to let that happen. So I, I did a JD MBA between Stanford and Yale Law School, where basically Stanford didn't really have to do anything. I just deferred a year and went there for two years. And I did my first year at Yale and my last year at Yale and double counted a whole bunch of stuff so that uh, it could all be done. But because I was really more interested in kind of learning what it was that this expertise that uh, business people were supposed to get out of a basically a two-year intense, basically liberal arts version of a business degree were getting out of it. My focus had always been really been on public policy. I had, before I went, I had worked in government in the state of Illinois, believe it or not. And when I graduated, I went to Washington, D.C. and and worked at a a law firm that was really a lobbying firm that was run by a bunch of former Carter administration people. And I did that for four years, enjoyed it, learned a lot. I moved to Chicago following a girlfriend who was teaching at the law school out there. And I got a job uh, running international affairs at United Airlines. And then we uh, at United Airlines sold the company to the employees And I was really kind of a special assistant to the CEO. I traveled with him. I wrote his briefing books. I did his speeches, that kind of thing, in addition to running uh, international affairs day to day. And uh, the employees were not interested in the ancien regime to stick around. And I could have sticked around just to do the, the line job I had. But all the fun stuff, like traveling with the CEO, would have been gone. And through a bunch of random connections, a friend of mine who was at Goldman Sachs in London working for a very senior partner there. That partner was looking to hire somebody, basically somebody without uh, any connections to the Goldman headquarters in New York that could be his person. I had some background in banking in that I had a summer job during my JD MBA in banking, but really I didn't have any particular background in it and didn't really have any particular interest in it. But the job was going to be in media business. And I always loved media. I mean, in the sense that I went to the movies a lot and I was a theater minor and I needed to get out of town and London was a great place. And I figured, well, why not? And so that was the beginning of my journey to becoming an investment banker, which would have been in 1994. They hired me sort of as a mid-level person or a a senior associate. I, I became a vice president the following year doing media banking at Goldman Sachs in London. Did that for a number of years, moved back to New York with Goldman, decided go to Morgan Stanley, which was a very unusual move at the time. In fact, I don't believe anybody had ever left. This was Goldman was still private. Anybody had ever left Goldman for Morgan Stanley. But the reason I did is I was, as the title of my only best-selling book, The Accidental Investment Banker, suggests an accidental investment banker. And I felt like I'd learned everything that I was going to learn about executing M&A deals, which is really what I focused on overwhelmingly at Goldman. And at Goldman, there was a very sharp distinction between execution people and relationship people. The relationship people obviously actually brought in business and massaged the clients, uh, gave them ideas. And then if that idea involved a strategic transaction, they turned it over to the execution people. And I figured, geez, okay, I've done execution. Now let me try being a relationship person. 
And uh, people uh, probably are just listening to this. If you take a look at me, I'm not an obvious relationship person. And particularly of that era <laughs> at Goldman Sachs, all of the relationship people looked shockingly maybe the German swim team from 1955. I mean, it was uh, people who <laughs> played golf, who wore tailored clothes, had square jaws, were blonde, went to the right clubs, belonged to the right clubs. And that wasn't me. So when I said, hey, okay, let me uh, be a relationship person, they said, uh, you're doing a great job. You're top of your class. Just keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, you know, that just wasn't interesting to me. And a number of places were so excited to get somebody from Goldman Sachs because they never left before. They were, and they were happy to make me a relationship person. What I did at Morgan Stanley and ultimately was the co-head of the media group there up until uh, 2003, when I figured uh, it was time to do something different for the, uh, the ins and outs of which uh, you can buy a paperback copy of The Accidental Banker if you want the, the gritty underside of that. I thought I was sort of done with that. That is the part of the job that I liked was the relationship part that is giving advice to people I liked about stuff that was important to them, which honestly, if you think about what attracted me about lobbying, it was giving people important decision makers advice about important issues that they cared about and giving honest, thoughtful advice and seeing it have an impact. What I hadn't realized from my summer banking experience, because you just sort of focused on the numbers and getting it done, was actually being a senior investment banker is very much like that in that you are giving advice. And if you're good at it, you're giving honest advice and you're trusted to really important decision makers. You know, CEOs of companies, you know, these, these are like being the mayor of a small town. I mean, some of these companies have hundreds of thousands of people at them and their impact is well beyond just the people who work there. So that part of the job really did excite me. But as co-head of the media group at Morgan Stanley, that was maybe 25% of my job. You know, the other part was managing, dealing with internal conflicts, working on stuff where you weren't really playing that role, but you were doing, you know, some kind of check the box exercise that was of no interest to me. So when I left, I had already started teaching at Columbia Business School, just a class on media mergers and acquisitions. And I thought maybe I'd like to write some more and maybe I'd like to teach some more. And at that time, Evercore, although today it is, I think, the fourth largest advisory firm overall, and by far the largest independent firm, i.e. by independent, I mean, we don't lend money. We just give advice. We're agents. We're not principals. I was the, Evercore at the time was a mid-market private equity firm that occasionally did deals uh, because the people who founded it used to run banking at Lehman and other places. But I was, I think, the third partner there who was dedicated to just advisory. And when I got there, we basically just agreed that, uh, I mean, I knew the people well. We had, we had been co-advisors on representing Dow Jones, actually, uh, for many years. And I, and I said, why don't you just give me an office? I'll do my stuff. And uh, hopefully I'll do a few deals. We'll split revenue and we'll see if it works out. And the long story is it worked out. And almost 20 years later, I'm still there. Uh, we went public in 2006. 
We went from being basically not a relevant independent firm, even we were tiny to being the largest. And now actually, you know, nipping at the heels of Morgan Stanley, uh, kind of incredibly in the overall league tables for M&A. And over the course of that trajectory, I also started teaching more, then became head of what uh, became the media and technology program at Columbia Business School, which I do with a colleague, uh, Professor Miklos Sarbery, and then ultimately was made an actually a full-time professor there where I that's my full-time job, but I am still a senior advisor at Evercore, and I did do some more writing. I wrote uh, a book, obviously, I mentioned Accidental Banker, which I wrote. It came out in 06. I started writing when I started at Evercore, but I've written three books since then, one with a very distinguished economist named Bruce Greenwald from Columbia Business School, who ran the Value Investing Center there for many years, and the other two on my own, and I read a column uh, for many years for the New York Times deal book, and now on Business Insider, which is just reviews of business books. And that's essentially my uh, life and my portfolio. Thanks, John. I appreciate you giving us the full story with a, a moderate amount of detail. It's really helpful. And I'd love to dive into a couple different parts of your story that you just shared and probe a little bit here for more detail for our, our audience. I want to go back sort of in, in linear order. I have a number of questions, a number of threads I'd like to pull on. First is at your time at United Airlines. You had mentioned that you were hired to run international affairs at United Airlines. Through some process or over some period of time, you had built a relationship with the CEO of United Airlines and become a special assistant to the CEO. Love to hear the story of how that relationship with the CEO formed. First of all, how did that come about? And second, I'm curious how, if there were any considerations or anything that you had to do to have that relationship in a way that didn't cause any challenges or issues with your peers. A lot of our students feel very intimidated and a lot of our listeners who are early mid-career professionals, they feel intimidated or nervous reaching out to a senior level executive at a firm at the company they're working for. You know, they think it's breaking hierarchy, it's inappropriate. I think there is this narrative that if you build a relationship with a senior executive, other people, other people will get jealous or you might rub some people the wrong way, create this image of being a ladder climber, et cetera, being a little bit too ambitious. So I'm wondering, how did that relationship with the CEO form and how did you manage that relationship with your teammates? So I was introduced to United actually through Dean of the Law School, where my girlfriend went, had an incentive to find me a job in Chicago. And she introduced me to actually a lawyer at United who introduced me to the general counsel who had been the longtime consigliere to the CEO. And he thought, based on my Washington experience, that I could serve a number of roles that they needed filled, including essentially being a speechwriter and traveling companion to the CEO, as well as working in this line position. So I was sort of pre-vetted by the CEO before I came in. But you are right. People are scared of you if you have a relationship with the CEO. And scared is the nicest thing that you might say. And they are suspicious of you. And particularly when a senior person, if you're a special assistant, whenever you have that job, whether it's a chief of staff job or a senior assistant job, there are two ways to play that. There's the, uh, hey, the boss sent me, you need to do what I friggin' say, because I am his conduit. And that is the fastest way to have a short and unhappy career wherever you are, because you might say, well, why? You're in charge. Well, 
having everybody around you spend every waking moment thinking about how they can embarrass you and bring you down is just not a good place to be. <laughs> so what your job, I think the nuance of ever playing that role is to be incredibly honest and transparent about what's going down, put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're, you've been tasked with kind of giving probably unwelcome news to, and strategize with them on how they can satisfy what's been asked for in the least painful way. Make them feel, because it's true, that you are on their side and that their ability to satisfy the big man or woman's needs is enhanced by collaborating with you so that in the best possible scenario, they actually and appreciate you. When you're given uh, power, as Uncle Ben in the first Spider-Man movie said, with great power comes great responsibility. And it's not just a moral responsibility. Even if you are a more selfish person, if you take the long view, you will be uh, better off for it. Thanks, Jonathan. I think that's really, really interesting insight to understand that you really, it sounds like led with empathy. You try to lead with empathy in that role to build positive, productive relationships. And it's, it's super insightful. I'd love to actually move on to another question. I want another thread I wanted to pull on. You had talked about your transition very briefly into investment banking. You of course talk about the book, The Accidental Investment Banker, where you of course in great detail, as you call it, lay out the underside, as you said, of that process. I'm curious if you can, for our, our listeners who might not read the book or haven't read the book. What's sort of the summary of what confluence of factors led to that accident? What led the decision to move into investment banking? Well, the decision was I needed to get out of the building and a friend of mine called. So it was an accident and one that I didn't think was going to, I certainly didn't think was going to last as long as it has, uh, you know, being in the profession for, you know, 25 plus years. And actually, if you ask my classmates at business school, who is the least likely person to be an investment banker, they probably would have picked me and I would have agreed with them. But going back to your empathy point and going back to what I was saying about public policy, I did discover, well, both that giving advice to a congressperson or a bureaucrat, the level of influence you actually have and in fact, the level of influence they have in terms of changing the world is minuscule compared to the level of influence that CEOs have on their domain. So I actually found that providing advice to decision makers who actually can make some decisions and do things about stuff that's important to them and their firms is a lot more exciting and a lot more fun. But in the same way that empathy is critical to giving it any kind of advice. If you are being a CEO is lonely because people generally want something from you and you always have to peel back the onion and you never know what their agendas or you suspect or you can guess, but you're not getting the straight poop. So it's actually an extraordinary relief for them if they feel that you actually are putting yourself in their shoes and answering the question, would I do if I were you? And coming to that 
with some incremental intelligence about what their competitors are doing, how the market sees you, what is uh, broadly going on in the both micro environments and overlaying that with a genuine interest in their success. And by the way, that's sort of the essential skill for any sales job and every service job at the end of the day is a sales job, right? There's no such thing as the perfect sales pitch in the abstract. You have to ask yourself who you are selling to. The perfect salesperson pitch uh, for the same product is different for different people. And if you are unable to put yourself in the shoes of that person, you are not going to be able to deliver a great sales pitch. Now, many bankers and lawyers and doctors are horrified by the characterization of their businesses as a sales business. But the truth is, you will not be successful in any of those if you can't get clients. And you say, well, what about medicine? Well, guess what? Referrals are everything. If you don't get referrals, you're not going to get a nice office. If you're the smartest lawyer in the world, but you can't get somebody to hire you, you know, somebody who can will use you shamelessly. You will not be a partner. You'll be called of counsel and you'll have an office in the basement. So if you want to do a service job, it is ultimately a sales job. And empathy is the key quality. And it was one that I learned from a, from the lobbying context. And I talked about how I had to apply it in my job at United. And when I became a banker kind of mid-level, Obviously, I didn't know a hell of a lot of things, but I was good at telling a story and telling a story from the perspective of the other person. And that skill is what I used while I backfilled all of the technical details that I needed in order to, you know, not commit malpractice as an investment banker. Interesting. It makes a lot of sense. A lot of folks listening, especially our students, they think of sales as a pejorative term. They hear sales and they think someone who's a snake, right? Someone who is manipulative, a silver tongue. There's lots of different associations that people have. And I actually heard you talk about this when you spoke to the Columbia chapter of Scholars of Finance, if I recall, the importance of sales. I'm curious how you've thought about building relationships about sales, going about that in such a way, building those relationships and, and selling you know, advice in such a way that is transparent feels morally and ethically upright and that you feel good about. And I don't ask the question to in any way imply that it takes some rare skill to do so, but I think that there are a lot of people who would probably benefit from hearing what it means or what it looks like to sell and to build relationships in a way with an objective that has an objective, but also that feels it's in alignment with their values and principles. So what I would say is that the most important structural feature of the ecosystem in which you operate is whether or not the focus is on long-term relationships or is primarily transactional. Probably the most disturbing development in investment banking, but more broadly and sadly, society as a whole, and for epitomized, I think, by our last president, who, you know, regardless of what your views of any number of aspects of either his policies or his personality, I think it would be very, very hard 
for somebody to characterize him as not symbolic of a purely transactional approach. That is, every deal is about that deal and optimizing for it. And he has he went through his life doing that and doing it effectively. So it's not, relationships are not the only way to go. In his business life, Donald Trump borrowed money from many very distinguished institutions and hired many distinguished law firms and other service providers and consistently either defaulted or reneged and then, you know, just sued until they got tired and went away. And that actually worked for him for some very, I mean, he's in his 70s now. It worked for him for a long time. Now, certainly since probably the 90s, no credible financial institution would even, I was at Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs. I can tell you that neither of them would allow you to bring Donald Trump to the commitments committee if he was looking for money. I mean, forget about whether it would be approved. The track record was clear. Now, it turns out Deutsche Bank, at some unfortunate points in its history, is not a credible financial institution, as many of the lawsuits and regulatory challenges it has received suggests. And that was the only institution that was left for him to use. But again, it worked for him. It's problematic for him now with all of the lawsuits he's facing, as it was with his last impeachment trial. He literally could not find a law firm that would be willing to work for him, just given the number that he had uh, simply uh, not paid. What does that have to do with what I'm talking about with respect to sales and, and banking? Well, there was a time where the prototype of an investment banker was the person who had relationships that sometimes span generations on both sides. Sidney Weinberg's relationship with the Ford family went from, I think, the 30s or 40s that was passed down to his son, John L. Weinberg, and maybe his son, John S. Weinberg, over the course of 50, 60 years. And when you are, when it's a private partnership and it's not a publicly traded security, you want to build value in your partnership. But in a world where your bonus for that year is what you're optimizing for, and then, you know, the next year you can might trade yourself to another firm with some long-term deal, then it becomes much harder to do the right thing. If uh, there's a, something they teach you in economics called the prisoner's dilemma, where you always have an, you always do better if you think out your partner. And the question is, what can you do structurally to solve this dilemma? Because mathematically, there is no solution to it you always do better by thinking them out. So how do you get them to cooperate? And the answer is make it a multi-period game, not a one-period game. Because in a one-period game, it makes no sense for you not to do the wrong thing, not to cheat your friend. But if you know you're going to be playing the same game over and over and over again, the total size of the pie gets bigger if you cooperate. And it's not just about how much of this year's pie you're going to get. It's how big the total pie is, and it's over a period of time, and your incentives are aligned. So I think in society more, more broadly, we have become much more transactional. And I think that creates a bunch of bad incentives 
around behavior in general. Jonathan, I completely agree. And I appreciate you bringing in economics and what I would call long-term thinking into the answer. One of our principles at Scholars of Finance, we have, as you know, six core values that we teach our students. And within each of those six core values, we have four principles that we think are the manifestation of that value through action specifically and observably. And one of our core principles is to operate patiently and think long-term. And we have that principle. Oftentimes it's justified because sort of the quarterly profit pressure that CEOs, the decision makers, as you've said, face makes it difficult for them to make investments and to drive transformation in their business that creates the most long-term value, right? That grows the pie the most for the most people over the longest period of time. But I appreciate you bringing that in as a lens for relationship building. I sort of, maybe for another podcast interview one day in the future, I'd love to unpack this, but I have this growing theory and I've been spending a lot of time researching how scarcity, how both real scarcity and perceived scarcity influence the transactional nature of relationships. And um, sort of have this growing theory that as we, as a human race, as we continue to grow the B pie, the economic pie through technology, improvements in agriculture, core infrastructure, healthcare, education, all of these different in finance, all these different systems, you sort of reach this point where global production per person is enough to sustain and meet the needs of every single person on earth. We figure out an economic system where we can actually, we can meet the needs of all people and sort of enter this, as I think Yuval Harari writes about this post-scarcity world. My sincerest hope is that you see the degree of transactional behavior, right? Sort of short-term self-interested net detrimental behavior start to decrease or dis- hopefully disappear. I know that my, by saying disappear, I immediately sound naive and idealistic, <laughs> but I think through a very rigorous, thoughtful process over time, collectively, we, we might actually be able to get there. And I think you bringing in some core economic principles also segues into something I wanted to talk about um, with just about 15 minutes left together. I'd love to try to pivot the conversation into another important element of your career, which has been academia, has been teaching, right? You've been professor at Northwestern, at Columbia. You've become a full-time professor now at Columbia Business School. Would love to hear more about your decision-making process going into full-time academics and your various interests within academia. If you can just paint a picture of sort of your journey in a little more detail with academia for our, for our listeners. I will also shamelessly pivot to talk a little about my current book, which is a little bit related to, or at least the aspect of it that's related to the conversation we just had, banking. So I did it initially, honestly, to get a second wind and to step a little outside the bubble of uh, banking and to uh, be infused with the enthusiasm of youth and also force myself to think about fundamental principles, which you need to do if you're going to ever teach something, you have to go back to basics. And the three books I've written since I've been an academic, the first one was called Curse of the Mogul, about the media industry. The second one was called Class Clowns, which is about how many very smart billionaires thought they could do well by doing good, investing in for-profit education, and ended up doing neither. 
And the current book is called The Platform Delusion. But all three of these books are about delusions and mythologies. And teaching is ultimately about giving people tools to make good decisions in life going forward. And so I guess I view what I'm doing is essentially that. And one of the most powerful ways to do that is by exploding conventional wisdom and commonly held beliefs that are driving bad decision-making. And each of those books is actually about a different delusion. Delusions are a funny thing. Delusions are beliefs based on wish fulfillment. And what Sigmund Freud tells us is that the intensity of the delusion is a function of how strong the underlying wish <laughs> is. And the platform delusion is really related to a very particular narrative that people have wrapped their arms around and has real implications, actually, if you go into banking for that as well. And the basic narrative is that these things called platforms are a new revolutionary business model that when they are digital, they are wildly more successful and resilient than when they are analog, that all of these platforms have this magical quality called network effects, and that all network effects businesses, that is businesses where, like a Facebook, every new person that joins makes it better. It has a virtuous circle nature to it so that it leads inexorably to winner-take-all markets. So as soon as you say the word platform, it's basically a way to signal that you have an indestructible business, that you should just give me your money, not ask too many questions, and life will be good. Now, all four of those tenets that underlie the platform delusion are demonstrably false, and you can buy the book and you can see why that's the case. But I think what's important here is to think about some very practical implications of this. You should always ask if there's a delusion. I mean, delusions come about many different ways, but there are usually some people who actually know very well what's going on, but also know the strength of the underlying wish that is supporting the delusion and feed it because it is in their interests to do so. So who would have an incentive to promote the notion that all platform businesses are fabulous and indestructible? Well, venture capitalists who are trying to get their uh, platform investments valued highly by the next person or private equity firms. The CEOs of these companies want to keep their stock prices incredibly high. When the CEOs of all the FANG companies were dragged down to Congress and had all of their emails unearthed, one really interesting aspect of it that people don't focus on is how different the flavor of what they say when they're talking to each other. For example, the Facebook executives, they're scared to death. They have lots of competitive threats. What uh, Zuckerberg called alternative social mechanics that can take big chunks out of their franchises. But to the outside world, to the investment community, 
they promote a notion of imperviousness. And in fact, there's one, there's one quote from one of the unearthed emails where the uh, finance guy says, I know what we can do. We got to have a better platform story. Now, what does this have to do with morals for bankers? Well, there are lots of different platform businesses. Some of them are good, you'll be shocked to know, and some of them are not so good. But there is this general sense that if you call something a platform business, you'll get a higher valuation. Now, take a business like uh, there's a real estate, any middleman business is a platform business. All a platform business means is it's a business that doesn't make stuff. It's a business that simply connects people. So any middleman business is effectively a platform business, a real estate broker, an old fashioned real estate broker. That's a platform. You don't own the house. You just connect buyers and sellers and you take a piece of it. That's no different than what eBay does, right? You connect buyers and sellers and you take a piece of it. Those are all platform businesses. So, but calling it a platform. So there's a business called Compass that went public. It's a real estate brokerage. It has some tech enabled aspects to it, but it's basically a real estate brokerage. When they went public, they used the word platform in describing their business 300 times. Now, it's not that it wasn't true that it's a platform, but at some point, you know, hyperbole crosses the line. It's true, but it is not particularly informative with respect to the underlying economics. Let's take a different business that isn't a platform business, but calls itself one. It's a great business. My daughter eats there at least five times a week. Sweet greens. So when they raised money at a crazy valuation and you look at their slide deck, they call themselves a food platform. It's a fast food restaurant. (laughs) <laughs> and it's not even a platform, right? I mean, it's not like they're connecting the buyers with random purveyors of, they actually buy the lettuce and the products and then they sell it. They're a regular <laughs> retailer. They're not a platform. But if you look mm-hmm. at all of the slide decks and they got a, a professor from Harvard Business School to sit on the board, would tell people, no, it really it is. It's, it is a platform. Interestingly, the lawyers and the bankers, when they went public just a month or two ago, told them, you can't say that in a public SEC document. You are not a food platform. You are something else. And trust me, sure, there was a huge fight because they've been saying it forever. But you cannot say things that are not true in public documents. But between saying things that are false and saying things that are misleading, the point at which hype becomes too much, it's an important issue that you need to wrap your arms around. And what you don't want to, it's very hard for a banker to lose business to somebody who's willing to be more aggressive and more hypeful. But, you know, at the end of the day, it is important, first of all, to just know the truth, because you can't judge intelligently when hype becomes fiction, and when hype becomes even, if not pure fiction, misleading enough that you should be uncomfortable without knowing the underlying truth. So broadly, I guess what I'd say is I've always taught on the side. I've loved, my parents were both teachers. As an undergrad, I taught, I was a TA. When I was at Stanford, I was 
Bill Sharp's finance TA at, when I was at Yale Law School, I was an instructor in economics. I always like to teach in part because it does force you to go back to basic principles, because if you don't understand what the basic principles are, you can't layer on top of that good judgment about when you've gone too far or not. And then I'd like to share that and uh, give people the tools to allow them to make their own decisions. Thanks, Jonathan. I know we only have two minutes left. So can I hit you with two rapid fire questions sure. to close us out? Okay. First of all, at Scholars of Finance, we talk about our vision of future where all finance leaders steward the world's capital to serve the greater good. Because as you and I have discussed, our thesis is that finance plays a critical role in society, allocating capital, uh, deploying capital to its highest and most productive use. What role do you think finance plays in society today? And what role do you think it will need to increasingly play in the future? Finance is the engine of growth. If you can't connect your great ideas with capital, they just become great ideas in your head. So finance is a critical tool to growth, and which is why the incentives the embedded incentives and the structure of those industries and the way that those industries are regulated are critically important. And they are also, as an industry, the folks who are giving advice to these incredibly important decision makers, not legislators, not government officials, but CEOs. And you want to have robust industry of, of integrity uh, providing that advice. Thanks, Jonathan. Where do you think that finance can make the most impact, in your opinion? In choosing where capital goes. And any the reason I've gotten involved with your organization is it's much harder to make the right decisions in businesses that are uh, not private partnerships, because you don't own it. You don't have to eat. You may own a little teeny bit of it, but mostly you get paid out every year. And the shift from the finance industry, from private partnerships to overwhelmingly public companies, creates very difficult incentives towards transactional decision-making and away from relationship decision-making. So any institutions that encourage relational perspective is a good thing, in my view. And given how central finance is, to everything, to all of the companies out there, because they all rely on them, to people's personal wealth who rely on the advice they get from their financial advisors and where people are putting the money in their pension funds and elsewhere. I mean, there's nothing more important. So anything one can do to encourage decision-making that cares about institutional, long-term, relational things, as opposed to just one-off transactional things, I think is hugely important for all of us. Thanks, Jonathan. It has been such a pleasure to have you on today. And we're so grateful for your time. Hope to have you on again sometime soon. Hope the rest of the year treats you well. And I hope you have a wonderful holiday season and um, look forward to the next time. Thank you. And good luck to you and to all of those who you've uh, gotten in your orbit. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Investing in Integrity by Scholars of Finance. I want to share a huge thank you to our advisors, directors, donors, team, and our members who make this all possible. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you have any feedback for us, you can send it to hello at scholarsoffinance.org or by visiting our website. Until next time, please join us on our mission to inspire character and integrity in the finance leaders of tomorrow.